I'm letting this terror organization change my life, that's their biggest win. The fact that I went back to do the same things I've done before as injured was my biggest win. Hello, welcome to this podcast called Finding Inspiration. It's a 20 or so minute weekly podcast where we interview someone with an amazing story. After the show, I know you're going to feel energized, invigorated, and inspired. I'm Jennifer Weissman. Welcome to Finding Inspiration. Welcome to 2023 and this very special highlights episode of Finding Inspiration. We all need to be inspired. We all want to have grit. We all want to feel resilient. Hearing stories of what other people have done can inspire us. And that's what this show is about. After you finish listening to the next 20 minutes, you will understand common thread that life is what you make of it. I had the opportunity to speak with people from all walks of life. And what became clear to me, their lot in life did not define them, that they made life happen for them despite overwhelming hardship, business hardship, physical hardship, like the woman who was told she'd never walk again and then climb Mount Everest or the blind Iron Man or the starving artist who later became a global sensation by doing life his own way or the blind photographer, or the woman who overcame the death of her son from an opioid patch. Yes, a patch can kill. Or the rabbi who moved to the United Arab Emirates to start a Jewish community. Or the CEO in the Ukraine who converted his office to a refugee center for Ukrainian refugees. Or the woman who went to Africa and saw contaminated water everywhere and brought innovation to change that and has now brought fresh water and electricity to millions and millions of Africans. To the woman who survived a concentration camp. To the man who discovered the benefit of recycling soap and saving children's lives. To the man who's recycling food and using that to feed millions of people. To the woman who lost both feet to malaria and has gone on traveling the world and innovating and sharing her story. To the man who started a school choice movement and has changed the lives of thousands of low-income kids through school choice vouchers. The list goes on and on. It is incredible what people can do when they innovate in their own lives. After you listen to this podcast, you too will make a habit out of being inspired and being curious. Happy 2023. I hope you live an inspired year ahead. Enjoy the next 20 minutes of some of the most inspiring episodes of this podcast called Finding Inspiration. I had no intention of ever fighting before I saw her get in that ring. And then I looked at her and I was like, that's what I want. That's what I want to do. So you had said early on that you lacked confidence and your life lacked purpose. Boxing has given me so much sense of purpose. I was very clumsy as a person. It gave me a lot of coordination. I feel like I have more worth as a person, if that makes sense. For sure, self-esteem. The weird thing about learning this kind of skill is when something external happens to you, a lot of times it can affect everything that you feel about yourself. 
and now I feel like nothing external can hurt me anymore. 10 years as an officer with eyes, 10 years as a blind person. And as a blind person, what did you do in the idea? Were you st- I was in the intelligence corps. My last four years was in the elite unit, 8200, and I learned their uh, cyber. Amazing. So at a certain point, you were blind, you were leaving, you were in the army. And what mm-hmm. at what point did you decide you were going to start physically working towards a goal of being an Iron Man? Was that a conscious decision? How did that happen? A week after when I was in conscience, I spoke to Nitsan, my wife. I told her, babe, give me two, three months. I'm going back to active duty. So it didn't take uh, three months. It took eight months. And I realized I want to go back to active service. Because in my point of view, as a person who has his degree on political science and national security, I realized that if I'm letting this terror organization change my life, that's their biggest win. The fact that I went back to do the same things I've done before as injured was my biggest win. And I didn't change my career. This is the first step. But going back to my first love, sport wasn't so easy due to the burns and the blast injuries. So it took it like almost two years. I have a big faith in small steps. Started with 1K running. That's it. And 2Ks and 3Ks. When I was able to go into the water, to the swimming pool, I started like 100 meters, 200 meters. Then I started cycling on a tandem bike with a partner. And it was fun. It was fun, but I'm getting bored really fast. Instead of looking at the flaws, I looked at what I loved about me. And that's what I chose to love. So the weight did not really bother you. It's sort of maybe from the outside. No 15, 14, 13 year old girl wants to be morbidly obese. Junior high is just hard enough to be morbidly obese in junior high. I have to wonder, that really must have been difficult. So one would think, but I think I was one of those people that's maybe the exception to the rule where I really was friends with everybody and I made my experience my experience. And, you know, there was only one situation in all of high school where a kid made fun of me in my class. People had my back and I felt it. I didn't let it define me. I think if anything, I sort of pushed through and said, I am who I am. This is how God created me. This is my body and I'll accept it. I didn't know any better. I didn't know that there was another opportunity or that there's another way I could look because this is who I was. This is what I was. This is what I looked like and I accepted it. So is there some part of you that thinks it was sort of like a a moral high ground Hey, I can be morbidly obese and still be captain of the cheerleading squad. I can be morbidly obese and be a contender on the swim team. I can be morbidly obese and I can have a boyfriend. Absolutely. I think you're as strong as your mental capacity allows it. And I was raised in a family where the sky's the limit. This level of maturity, I think that it comes to every one of us at a certain moment of your life, but it's not too late. You can get it at 50. You can get it also at uh, 25. It's okay. It's You need sometimes this um, electric shock. Spark. <laughs> Spark. wake up call, you know, you know, yeah. I call it a wake up call in the book, but uh, you know, to reset the computer because we are kind of uh, in a loop. When I went to my school, my mother-in-law came to my mom, knocked at the door. I want to take your daughter, Doris, to my son, Marcel. As Arab Christian, also doing arranged marriage, it was very normal in the same day, times. How are you going to grow this franchise, this Doris Inc.? Hey, look, I love very much what I'm doing. I'm hosting people in my home. I talk about my area, about myself, who I am. came without a penny and I had to go to school and study and support myself. And how old were you? 
24 when I came to New York. When I found a job, they paid me $1.60 an hour. That was the, the minimal wage. Wow. I remember working like five uh, hours a day, making $8 wow. a day. And I had to eat with that to pay my rent and, uh, and buy colors and, and, and brushes and whatever. Two years, it was very, very difficult. So uh, when I finished my study, I said, well, I can keep on going like that, you know. It was too difficult because the cost of living in New York? Cost of living. Yeah. And I also missed uh, Israel. But um, from one hand, I thought the opportunities are enormous in in, uh, in America and New York. And I would love to stay, but I wasn't ready to suffer. So yeah. <laughs> I said, okay, when I made my studies, it's okay. You know, I can stand everything. But um, like... At the age of uh, 26, you know, to to be penniless and to struggle, I didn't feel uh, ready for that. So I went back to Israel and started to do my art. I feel like doing it, and I, you know, I insisted on doing it. Sometimes I became doubt about what I do, but uh, after a while, I decided, no, no, this is the, the thing I want to do. Eight years I struggled um, in with the new things I did until finally somebody in the Israel Museum liked it very much and gave me a show. It was in 87. And from that moment, uh, things started to move ahead because uh, once you become recognized by uh, a museum, which is uh, like an authority, people look at you differently. I believe that although my work is very joyful, very colorful, people think that I'm uh, happy-go-lucky, but it's not, not really true. I think that uh, under the surface there's a lot of um, uh, deep things that I'm saying and I wanted to say that weren't yet seen I'm sure it will be seen uh, later because it takes time for the art to pass into the audience so uh, as many times it's after the artist's uh, death that uh, people discover the things that he did uh, not very um, appreciated maybe the best is yet to be I, I believe well, when we give out our scholarships and grants, we're going to give them to low-income parents who can choose whatever kind of school they want. If they want to keep their kid in public school, who the hell am I to tell them they need to pull out? Low-income parents with the same kind of choice that high-income parents already have and try to level the scale. Parents' Challenge is not a philanthropy. Parents' Challenge is a partnership. I ran for governor and in the process, and I'd never done anything politically, I, so I was way behind the learning curve. And so I had to become a quick study started studying K-12, to look at the scores, they're atrocious, understand the system and how it's funded, because obvious, power's on the wrong side of the equation. Power's on the side of the provider, not on the side of the consumer. All the money goes to the provider. They got a monopoly. This is pre-charter school. The question is, how will you deal with those mistakes? Are you going to let them paralyze you? Are you going to let them motivate you? But we just kept adjusting as we went along. We still do it. We have about 300 kids in the program. Our budget's just south a million bucks. Staying in hospital, I told to myself, I will show everybody. I will climb Everest. I didn't know anything about mountains. I didn't know anything about climbing. I never climbed before. Told me if I'm staying there, I will not wake up in the morning. A Mount Everest is very egoistic mount. You are not
not thinking about this body. You are not thinking what happened. You're, you are only thinking about yourself. I thought only about myself and I thought only how I am not staying there with that body. A lot of articles that written that Mount Everest is very egoistic mountain. You are even on the Everest after 8,000 meters. Everything changed. You're only thinking about yourself, only thinking, thinking how to survive. You're only thinking how to reach your goal and to go down. And you are not thinking about anybody. You are not helping. By rescuing food, surplus food, ending food waste. Two, three hundred people invited to a wedding, sometimes half don't show up. I've seen all that food, all this extraordinary great food being thrown out. We are a very green-minded organization. We're rescuing food to help climate change and we're helping the poor. I look for metaphors of blindness uh, to describe my world to the sighted world. What does that say about my world? You know, that talks about your world. I'm no longer in your world. You know, I'm not going to hide from society. And I went after a, a black belt in Taekwondo so I could handle myself on the street, do what I intend to do. And uh, what I intended to do was not to sit down and cry, but to uh, engage in life to the best of my ability. My whole life was visual. You know, I, I did artwork. I made things. I, I basically survived on my creativity and uh, my wits. To learn that I was going to go totally blind was uh, devastating. It was like being hit by a hammer. All blind people are, use echolocation, uh, their ears, to uh, navigate in the world. Uh, you can use a cane. You can use a guide dog. And I use both. In sparring, when I sparred with people, uh, it was always at full speed because, you know, they didn't know I was blind. I learned how to use sound to tell when something was approaching or, you know, I've got this skill. Uh, now let's bring it out into the world. You know, not not the fighting skill, how to navigate, how to find things, how to avoid things. I used sparring at that time as a feedback loop to uh, tell me that I definitely had the skills that I was looking for. Navigate in the world. So simple things like um, finding the top of a staircase. I do by sound. I don't count the steps. I, I don't use a cane or a dog to do it. I just listen for the open space at the top. To describe to you what I do with my photos, I look for metaphors of blindness uh, to describe my world to the sighted world. Darkness and blindness are related. So I shoot in a totally dark studio. Uh, I shoot at night out, at, out in the world. I look for metaphors. So SafeUp is a social network of women's solidarity to prevent sexual harassment and to feel safer in their day-to-day -day life. For me personally, I understand the meaning of feeling unsafe uh, 10 years ago uh, when I was a teenage and I uh, go with some friend of mine to a home party. When suddenly in that party, uh, I realized that one of my friends uh, missing. I start to look for her and after that I take with me another friend and we, was we were searching the house and after a few minutes we think that we hear there's a voice from some room and we get closer to the door and take a big breath and open the door and found there two guys in the middle of a kind of struggling half naked the government would like to formalize uh, a jewish community in the uae and they're looking for a rabbi my contact with the uae date back like 11 years with government officials, with uh, Emirati society and businessmen when they would come to New York. I came uh, three years ago uh, to the UAE with a Torah scroll dedicated in memory of Sheikh Zayed, the founding father of this country. And so I had the meeting with the crown prince, uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, 
Abu I had already my connections and my with the community and also with the government of the UAE. That was just uh, visiting. There was no intention to uh, move here or anything like that until I was invited to participate by the community. And but there was no intention whatsoever to come and move here. I had my beautiful large community in in New York, uh, very well established for many years. But then the Abraham Accords came. I did get this phone call that now the government would like to formalize uh, a Jewish community in the UAE and they're looking for a rabbi. Sam had died from the fentanyl pain patch. We got a call um, from my mother. It started with, uh, Kristen, you need to come up here. They think Sam is dead. It was 534 in the morning. We jumped out of bed. We ran to the car and drove well over the speed limit to my parents' house. You know, when the medical examiner said to us that it was Sam had died from the fentanyl pain patch, she let slip that there had been multiple fentanyl deaths in our local area over the last six weeks before Sam's death. None of that had ever made the press. It didn't make the paper. It didn't make the local news stations, nothing. And yet there had been this problem. But at the same time, we live um, about 10 minutes south of Middlebury College in wonderful Addison County, Vermont. But Addison County, Vermont does not want to have the reputation of being a hotspot for illicit drug use and opioids in particular. Quite new inside the world of triathlon. In a few years' time, I become one of the, the upcoming guys inside the top of the triathlon. 2019, I started to, to win the big races. He hit me and I had a bad accident. In Ukraine, in the western part in Ukraine, in Lviv, when the war started. So it's kind of a vacuum created. And I was the, I think, the right guy in the right time. And, and I just, you know, I, I think I did what every good human being, never mind his religion, his color, his where he coming from, his story, should do, or I expect them to do. Uh, so I opened my offices. Basically, we convert two floors. You have a huge office, 4,000 square meters. Let's say Google campus style. Uh, so you have the gaming area, sport area, a lot of cool stuff, cafeteria and stuff like that. So we started to convert our office to uh, basically to become a refugee center. Every day, between 200 to 300 people in the beginning of the war. Uh, we give them place to sleep, to eat, to drink, to get a shower. And in the morning, we are departing them to the borders. We had buses operating with other organizations like the Jewish community in Germany, uh, other communities worldwide. And we start transfer people outside of the country. What I didn't know about it being sunset and next to a pool of water, I had been bitten three times on my left ankle and I didn't know it. And then I left Nigeria, went via Abu Dhabi to India. And then I flew back to Australia on a Wednesday, changed my luggage. And on Thursday, I flew with my best friend to Boston on a trip that I'd won so randomly. Had a girls weekend. And on Sunday, we were in the airport waiting to fly back to Australia. And I didn't make it out of the lounge. Because we are active in so many conflict zones and because it requires us to network with the various power centers in the country, in the, whether it's the regime or opposition or many parties to a civil war, we are often approached, first of all, to help mediate the conflict when there is a ubiquitous will to end the conflict. When that's not the case, there's not much we can do. And also, we then get asked to help with missing people, missing Westerners. I met a survivor of domestic violence. Her husband tried to kill her, but she survived and shared a story with the whole country. And by sharing her story, she dramatically increased the awareness of domestic violence. I mean, there's 9,000 children dying and there's millions of bars of soap available every day. I just got to figure out how to get the millions of bars to the 9,000 children. And that was the moment that the clean the world idea was was born. We could take all this used soap 
from hotels when guests are done using them, recycle it and send it to children around the world. There were 9,000 children under the age of five that were dying every single day to pneumonia and diarrheal disease. Number one and number two leading cause of death amongst children under the age of five worldwide. Every one of these studies said that if you just gave them soap and taught them how and when to wash their hands, you could cut those deaths in half. And the light bulb went off. I just got to figure out how to get the millions of bars to the 9,000 children. Africa as a continent has so much potential. It is rich in natural resources. The people are phenomenal. And yet we see with 620 million people living predominantly in sub-Saharan Africa without access to electricity, the simplest of things are unable to turn on a light bulb. So how can technological advances take place if the simplest of things like electricity or access to clean water are unavailable? It's like 10 days during expedition on Everest. First of all, it's a uh, summer months. It's all the time, 24-7 daylight. All 24 hours, you do something. First of all, it's a sportive expedition, so you do everything. There's no porters, there's no Sherpa, there's no people that can carry something for you. So I'm going with sled, that the weight of the sled is between 40 to 60 kilograms. Every climber taking own sled and going base camp, camp one, camp two, camp three. Because it's a light all the day, so we are uh, building the camp. We are preparing uh, water from the snow. Everything takes hours. The idea of uh, surfing for peace was conceived when I introduced him to uh, a friend of mine named Abdallah Seri. Doc, he's from the old times. He's one of those special people. He had a vision. And when he gave the first board to Abdallah, he said, in 1956, I gave the first board to the Jews. And now I'm giving him to the Arabs. You're going to be the father of Arab surfing. He was a true visionary. But he, his idea was just to create a stronger bond based on the mutual passion for surfing. And he had this sentence and saying, uh, God will surf with the devil, the waves are good. So now you've heard a quick snapshot of some of the most intriguing podcasts in the Finding Inspiration show. Right now, jump on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tune in, hear the full episode. I think it could change your life. And at the very least, I guarantee it will inspire you. Thank you for joining us this week on Finding Inspiration. Hey, I would appreciate it if you would click on that subscribe button and share this podcast with a friend. See you next week. I'm Jennifer Weissman.